Good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Genesis. I spend most of my time over in Noblesville, uh, but I am excited to be here with you this morning. I'm excited about your August 10th block party. If you haven't signed up to be a part of that yet, please do so, because if you do, you get a free t-shirt. And I think this is fuchsia, and I would never buy one of these, but if it's free, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and to be honest with you, I put it on in between the services because I didn't know we had these. And I'm a little nervous that it's too tight. And so I'm going to be self-conscious the whole time that I'm like, man, if you're thinking to yourself, man, why is, he, why is his t-shirt so tight? What's wrong with that guy? Uh, that's why. That has nothing to do with what we're here to talk about today. We are in the final week of our series titled Uncompromised. And we're studying through the book of Colossians. If you brought your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to pick up one of the ones uh, on the floor around you. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 is going to be on page 822 of one of those blue Bibles. And before we dive in, will you just, I, I want to pause and pray. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Uh, your word says in Romans that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. For loving us. Thank you for uh, Jesus. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Spirit of God. Thank you for the local church. And Father, I trust that everyone here today is here for a reason. You've got something to say to us. And so I want to pray that Ephesians 1 prayer. And I want to pray, God, would you pour out your spirit of wisdom and revelation on us this morning? Would you help us through your Word, through your Spirit, Help us to know you better, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we named this series Uncompromised because that's the kind of life that Paul was calling Christians to live in, the letter, uh, in this letter of Colossians. Paul had heard that some compromise was taking place in their church. One theologian described it as slipping doctrine. These Christians had begun to slip away from what they had first been taught, and Paul wrote this letter as a way to correct their compromise. In the first half of his letter, of his letter Paul emphasizes uh, the absolute supremacy of Christ, that Christ is the beginning uh, of all creation. He's the head of the church and of every believer, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he has done for us, that we've been forgiven and that we can now uh, take off our old self and put on the new. And in the second half of Colossians, he talks about how do we do that? How do we take off the old and to put on the new? What's that practically look like? We are to clothe ourselves with Christ. Paul says our lives are hidden in Christ, that Christ now is our very life. And last week, we ended in verse 17 of chapter 3. That's exactly where we're going to pick up today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, Paul writes, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to highlight that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, Paul says, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, because of Colossians chapter 1 and 2, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is not an easy task for the Christ follower. Have you ever driven the wrong way down a one-way street? Right? You turn onto the street, and when you look up, you realize you're going the wrong way, and you see all this traffic and all these cars coming at you, and in that moment, you realize you're the only one who's going the wrong way, and all you want to do is turn around and go the same way everyone else is going. You want to join the flow of traffic. Well, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is a lot like that. 
Because everywhere we go, everywhere we look, someone or something is trying to influence us to go the way everyone else is going. What direction is everyone else going? I think you could call it the direction of self. Sometimes we forget that we have three major sources that are trying to negatively influence the way we live our lives. Our flesh, the world, and the devil. All three of these sources are tempting and urging us to do everything in the name of self. One pastor called it the unholy trinity. Our flesh seeks to protect and promote self. The world says it's all about you. And Satan is trying to deceive us into believing that the best way to live our lives is to live our lives in the name of self, to do what's in our best interest. I like what uh, author Neil Anderson says about the flesh, the world, and the devil. He writes, the flesh scrambles for the throne and struggles to be God. We want to be king and rule our own lives. Don't you sense that struggle? Isn't that true? He goes on. He says, the heartbeat of this fallen world is the diabolical idea that people are their own gods. And Satan's primary aim, Anderson says, is to promote promote self-interest as the chief end of man. This is why it's so difficult to live an uncompromised life because we have all of these sources tempting us to live in the name of self. And while the word of God and the spirit of God are telling us to do everything in the name of Jesus, we're being tempted to do everything in the name of self. Now, what does it mean to do everything in the name of Jesus? Well, let's look back at Colossians 3.17 again, but this time let's look at it in the New Living Translation. We're gonna see a key word that's gonna give us some insight here. Colossians 3.17, New Living Translation. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative, as a representative of the Lord, uh, giving thanks to God through him. To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do it as a representative of Jesus. I played basketball in high school, and and whenever our team would go on a road trip of some kind, our coach would always give us the talk. Maybe you've had the talk before from someone. Maybe parents, you probably give your talk to your kids this, uh, give this talk to your kids from time to time. And here's the talk. It's simply this. Remember, whatever you do, you're representing your team and your school. And so make sure you represent us well. And this is what it means to do everything in the name of Jesus. It means that whatever we do, we are to represent Christ. And if you're taking notes today, you might want to write that down. We represent Christ. In Colossians, we've already looked at how Paul says, we've died with Christ, our lives are hidden in Christ. We now bear his name and we represent him in every area of our life. And so in Colossians 3, in our text today, Paul is actually going to Uh, touch on three key relationships. The first relationship we're going to look at is the husband-wife relationship. Next, the parent-child relationship. And then thirdly, the slave-master, or as we're going to look at in a few minutes, the employer-employee relationship. Paul is going to address each of these six roles, husbands, wives, parents, children, employer-employee. And we're gonna, just going to briefly touch on each one of these roles, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, how do we represent Christ in each of these roles in these key relationships? Let's pick it up, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. I am so thankful that I get the privilege of teaching this passage. 
you know what? I think I'm going to scrap my notes. We're just going to spend 30 minutes on this one. You know what I mean? Can I get an amen? No. Uh, on one hand, this may be the number one passage all men want to preach on, but on the other hand, it's kind of like the number one passage that no pastor wants to preach on, you know? Okay, so when I told my wife I was teaching on this passage, her first response was, well, lucky for you, you have a perfect model of this in your home. <laughs> Wives often ask the question, what is exactly does it mean to submit to your husband? And all joking aside, this is a topic that can really, we could spend a lot of time on. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it today. We're just going to briefly touch on it. But it's a valid question. And so let's briefly just emphasize a few things. First, let's emphasize what Paul is not saying, okay? Paul is not saying that women in general are to submit to men. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. He says wives are to submit to husbands in the context of their marriage. Paul is not saying that wives are of some kind of lesser value than husbands. The Bible does not teach that men have some greater inherent worth than women. As a father of three daughters, I would never even, uh, you, you never think that. You never see that in Scripture. We see, in fact, in Genesis 1, that on the sixth day of creation, God made man and woman and declared both of them very good. They're of equal value. Men and women are of equal value. Paul is not saying that wives are to obey their husbands. He could have used the word obey. There are times when I wish he would have used the word obey, but he doesn't, right? Paul's not saying Wives, you must do everything your husbands tell you to do. That's not what Paul's saying. And Paul is not saying that husbands make all the decisions or that husbands get to make all the plans. That's not what Paul's saying either. So what is he saying? Well, the Greek word for submit here means to be subject to, or it means to place yourself under or to yield to. If two people are dancing, one of them has to yield to the leadership of the other, or they are, it's not going to be a very... Pretty, pretty dance. If two cars come to the same intersection at the same time, one has to yield to the other or there's going to be a crash. God has designed marriage in such a way that the husband is to play the role of leader. He is to be the protector and a covering over his wife. Husbands, uh, I'm going to get to you in just a minute. And the wife is to place herself under his leadership and protection. God designed this marriage relationship actually to be an image or a reflection of our relationship to Christ. The Bible refers to the, uh, to, uh, the Christ follower, uh, the, the church, as the bride, and Jesus is the groom. Here's how Paul says it over in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, that's our model, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Paul is drawing, here's what I want to make sure you see this. Paul is drawing a comparison between the husband-wife relationship and Jesus' relationship to the church, to the Christ followers. Pastor and author Tim Keller, in his fantastic book, The Meaning of Marriage, if you're looking for a marriage book, look up The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. In it, he writes this, the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. In order to make marriage work, and he actually goes so far to say the secret to making marriage work, is to know the gospel and how it gives you both the power and the pattern for your marriage. So wives, submission to your husband is an image or a representation of the church's submission to Christ. And you are to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we have to be reminded, be reminded, ladies, 
that this message is the exact opposite of what you're hearing from your flesh, from the world, and you're hearing from Satan. And it was true in the Colossian church. One of the reasons why Paul was writing this is because there was compromise. There were women, there were wives not submitting to their husbands. That's why Paul writes this. And so I want you to encourage you this morning, wives, make the decision not to compromise in your role as a wife. When you live uncompromised in this way, you represent Christ to the world. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Wives, you represent Christ, so submit to your husbands. Now, <clears throat> one of the questions on a few of your, uh, a few, uh, some of your ladies, some of you all maybe have a question you may have on your mind is this. What if, <laughs> it's so nervous to talk about this topic. What is, uh, <laughs> so anxious. <laughs> Uh, can we move on? Um, <laughs> I'm going to get my sweet spot. I'm going to talk to men in just a minute. Okay. What if my husband, some of, the, some of you ladies have this question. What if my husband isn't a Christ follower? Am I still supposed to follow his leadership? That's a great question, and I think it's a really tough one. And again, I don't have time to unpack every detail and dynamic, but I, I think a wise approach is this. Ladies, if you can follow your husband's leadership, without compromising Christ's leadership, then do so. If you cannot, then you follow Christ. Now, let me say that again. If you can follow your husband's leadership without compromising your devotion to Jesus, then you follow your husband's lead. But if ever you following your husband's leadership would mean that you can't follow Jesus' leadership in your life, then you choose to follow Jesus. And there are, um, for, for those of you wives, that are in this position, um, there's a great passage that addresses this, and it's a, it's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what the apostle Peter has to say about this issue. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word. I want you to hear what he's saying. He's saying, wives, if you're following Jesus, but your husband doesn't believe or he's not following Jesus, here's what you do. You submit yourselves to husbands so that, circle is so that, if any of them do not believe, they may be won over. They may be won over. Not by words, but by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Wives, your husbands are watching your relationship with the Lord. You may not think they are, but I'm telling you, they are. They're watching. And if you put this passage into practice, if you trust God and in his instructions here and you obey his word, your husband will notice. Now, I cannot guarantee you, I'm gonna make no false promise that your husband's gonna respond positively or the way you want him to. But I will say this, they're gonna notice. And maybe most importantly, by doing so, you will represent Christ beautifully and it pleases the Lord. One more thing before we move on to husbands. A bit of a sensitive topic. In a church our size, chances are there may be one or two wives sitting in the room today who are in an abusive marriage. Maybe you're being emotionally abused or physically abused. And you're wondering, how does this passage apply to me? I want to say this plainly. It doesn't apply to you. It does not apply to you. If your husband is abusing you in any way, emotionally, physically, verbally, the answer isn't, well, I just need to submit to him. Neither this passage nor I nor the leaders of this church would ever suggest that you should endure any kind of abuse in your marriage in the name of Jesus. That's not what God wants for you. And I want to come to you this morning and tell you that your heavenly father sees you 
He knows what you're going through and he wants to help you. He loves you and he cares about you and there is some help available. First, if you're in that position, please come to us. As pastors and leaders of this church, we wanna help you. We are here for you. Second, I also wanna recommend a book by Dr. David Clark's called Enough is Enough, How to Leave an Abusive Relationship. This book is gonna give you a biblical framework and foundation for how to honor the Lord in your marriage by actually protecting yourself and taking care of yourself in an abusive situation. So for the rest of you wives, you represent Christ and so submit to your husbands. Now, let's move on to the husbands. And let's see how husbands can represent Christ to our wives. Look what Paul says next, verse, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The word for harsh here is, uh, can also be translated embittered. Maybe some of your translations say, do not embitter your wives. Uh, it, also, it means don't produce a bitter taste in her mouth. Husbands, don't exasperate or irritate your wife. Don't cause her grief. The other night I was reading this paragraph out loud to my wife, and she said, that's exactly what you caused me. <laughs> Thank you, honey. I need to be reminded of that. Nice and stay humble. I love my wife. She's so funny. She was just joking. Um, <laughs> husbands, let's not exasperate our wives. Don't be harsh with your wife. Instead, we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. That's what Paul says over in Ephesians. Look over there again. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives just as. Just as. Key phrase. Underline that. Circle that. Husbands, you are to love your wives. How am I, love, how am I to love my wife? Just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Jesus is your model, men. Christ gave himself up for the church. He sacrificed his life for our benefit in order to take care of us, namely for the forgiveness of our sins. Guys, this is what real biblical leadership looks like. This is what real biblical love looks like in marriage. I like how Eugene Peterson summarizes this Ephesians passage in the message. He says this, husbands, go all out in, in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love that's marked by giving, not getting, Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. I love that line. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Uh, dressing her in dazzling white silk, the passage continues, radiant with holiness. And this is how husbands ought to love their wives. I love that line. Everything he does, the husband does, and says, is designed to bring the best out of his wife. Husbands, husbands, this is our role in marriage. Wives are to yield and to place themselves under the leadership of the husband, but husbands, you are to do everything you can to make it a blessing for your wife to be under your care and your leadership. God wants your wife to thrive under your care and under your leadership. In fact, guys, let's do a little bit of a gut check this morning. I want you to ask yourself this question. Men, if you're a husband, I want you to ask yourself this question. You may want to consider writing it down. To what degree is your wife blessed and thriving under your care and leadership? To what degree is your wife blessed and thriving under your care and leadership? Again, Jesus and the church is the model. And under the care and leadership of Jesus, the church has been set free and forgiven. Under the care and leadership of Jesus, the church has experienced grace and mercy. Under the care and leadership of Jesus, the church is alive and thriving and bearing fruit and bringing God glory. Husbands, can we say the same thing about our wives? 
Does your wife experience a sense of freedom and forgiveness from you? Does she experience grace and mercy from you? Does she experience you sacrificially serving her? Is she alive and thriving? Guys, I know those can be some tough questions to ask and reflect on, but I mean that, and I think the Lord uses these scriptures as a sobering assessment to remind us of what God really wants from you in your role as a husband. This is how we represent Christ. Husbands, you represent Christ, so love your wives. Okay, so Paul addresses the marriage relationship. He's addressed the wife and the husband, uh, and now he's going to move to the parent-child relationship and try to say, how do we represent Christ in those roles? So let's look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. First, I think it's really neat that the Apostle Paul would write an instruction in one of his letters to children. I think that's fantastic. This tells me that God cares deeply about our children, and we inherently kind of know that, but I don't think he just cares about their emotional and physical well-being. God cares deeply about the spiritual development of our children. The Lord is not waiting for our children to somehow grow up and be adults, and then that's when they're going to start following the Lord. No, the, Paul's apply, Paul implies here that there is a way, there's a way for children, even at a young age, to live their lives in such a way that they can be pleasing to the Lord. I think that's a cool thought. And there are a number of young people in the room this morning, okay? So I wouldn't call you all children because some of you are like, I ain't no child. So, but let me just say this, okay? Let's say it this way. If you're under the age of 18, okay, I want you to really listen to what God has to say to you. God says that the best way for you to please him while you're under the care and leadership of your parents is to obey them. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it over in Ephesians chapter 6. He says it this way. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Paul is actually referencing the Ten Commandments there. We, uh, children, you uh, are to obey your parents. God has placed your parents in authority and leadership over your life. Now, it may not always seem like it, but God did this as a way to protect you and to care for you, and to bless your life. When Jesus was 12 years old, he had some conflict with his parents. The story is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Jesus and his family are, vis are visiting Jerusalem, uh, but when they leave Jerusalem to go back home to Nazareth, apparently Jesus missed the instructions on where to be and when, and he misses the ride. We know Jesus was sinless, that he never sinned, but the Bible never says that Jesus didn't make a mistake. Maybe he made a mistake. We don't know for sure what happened. We don't know the details, but somehow Jesus's parents get all the way halfway back to Nazareth before they realize that Jesus isn't with them, okay? I want you to think about this. They frantically return back to Jerusalem, which the text tells us it took them over a day to make it back up to Jerusalem. Could you imagine going down to Florida for vacation and you leave and you make it all the way back to Nashville before you realize you left your son or your daughter in Florida, stranded, all alone, and they're the son of God and savior of the world. <laughs> what a moment, right? So the whole episode is recorded there in Luke chapter 2. This, the, his parents have this great moment of anxiety, and they are frustrated. 
There's a, the text says they're frustrated and they're anxious. Are there any middle schoolers in the room that can relate to making your parents frustrated and anxious? Anybody? Anybody? Amen. Neville boys are raising their hand. Yes. I called them out. I was looking for an opportunity to take a shot at you, Jerry. Okay. Uh, be encouraged. Even 12-year-old Jesus stressed out his parents. Here's the point of the story. It says in Luke 2.51 that Jesus went back to Jerusalem with his parents and that he was obedient to them. Wrap your minds around that. Here is the Savior of the world, the creator of heaven and earth, and he has humbled himself to the point where he places himself under the care and leadership of his parents. He submits to them and he obeys them. What a model. Children, you represent Christ, so obey your parents. Now, parents, take a minute, get a little soapbox. I'm a parent of five little ones. Uh, we just had our fifth a couple months ago. Uh, I'm around of a lot, a lot of young parents. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you've got young people still in the home, I want to encourage you to champion and celebrate obedience in your home. And here's why. When you champion and celebrate obedience with your children, when you teach them to obey you, you are actually training them and preparing them to ultimately obey God. Now, parents were not to do this with a harsh or demanding attitude. In fact, Paul addresses this kind of in the next instruction to fathers and parents. Let's look back at the text with me, verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The word for embitter means to stir up or provoke to anger. Fathers, don't stir up or provoke your children to anger. Here's how Paul says it over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, what do we do with our kids? We're to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them. And I want to point out that the Apostle Paul specifically highlights fathers here. Did some homework, looked in the different texts. Nowhere does it say parents. It says fathers. Now, I think the instruction applies to both moms and dads. Okay, so moms are included here. But God's word emphasizes fathers here, and so I want to emphasize what God's word emphasizes. So let me take a minute to do that. Here's what I want to say to the fathers in the room. If I had to summarize in my own words what I think Paul is saying to fathers, it's this. Don't disrespect your children. This is frustrating to me. I don't do this perfectly, but I tell you, I see a lot of young dads around me who treat their children in very disrespectful ways. I see a lot of dads around me who disrespect their children in a way they would never disrespect a peer. Guys, your children are the people in your life that you should treat with the greatest respect and value. They are the ones that you are to honor and to love and to serve. So love them well. Respect your children. I like to say it this way. Parent your children in the way God parents you. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. We should never, as fathers, treat our children in a way that God doesn't treat us. Think of it this way. When your children read in the scriptures that God is patient and kind, that God is not easily angered, that God is gracious and compassionate, that he forgives and that he's merciful, when your children read that, make it your goal that as they read that description of God, they think, that sounds a lot like my dad. Now, parents, you're not going to do this perfectly, and that's okay. There's grace. But when you do exasperate your children, when you do mess up, humble yourself 
acknowledge your wrongdoing, and ask for their forgiveness. Fathers, if you've never asked your child for forgiveness, you sh- that's a red flag. You should be concerned. Because we often mess up. And when we do, we need to model the humility of Christ and ask our children for forgiveness. And I want to say something to the parents of adult children in the room. Maybe your, your children are out of the home and they're living on their own. And maybe your dad's sitting here today and you know as you look back raising your kids that you exasperated them. But you've never apologized for that? Let me give you a tip to do that will just breathe life into your relationship with your children. Call them up this week and apologize and say, you know what, there were times, I heard this message this Sunday and it got me thinking, there were times in your childhood when I exasperated you and I realized that I never asked for your forgiveness and I just want you to know, I'm sorry looking back in hindsight that I did that, would you please forgive me? And if I had to do it over, I want you to know I'd do it differently. That'll bless your relationship with your kids. Okay, parents, you represent Christ, so don't be harsh. You wanna write that down in your notes. Okay, so Paul has covered the husband-wife relationship. He's covered the parent-child relationship. He's just working through all these roles. Now he's gonna touch on one more, the slave-master relationship. Colossians chapter three, verse 22 says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and, and do it, not only when the, their eye is on you uh, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. There's the key since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. One commentary explains that slavery was a basic and accepted element of first century society. We, we hear Paul address slaves and masters here. It, it strikes many of us as barbaric, but we should keep in mind that this slavery was very different than uh, American slavery, okay? It wasn't the same. In fact, it's just a few things. First, it was not associated with ethnicity. Slaves could be from any nation or any race. Second, slavery was, was rarely permanent. Uh, many gained freedom within years. Some were, peop- some were able to actually save money and buy their own freedom. Others gained Roman citizenship when they were freed, which was a blessing for them. Third, for many slaves, uh, slavery acted as bankruptcy. So if they were unable to pay their financial debts, selling oneself as a slave ended their obligations to their creditors and debtors. And lastly, many slaves lived more comfortable lives than even freedmen. So it's very different when we read that. And, and so Paul's instructions, while given directly to, and li- to literal slaves and masters there in, in Colossae, for us, a secondary application, and I think it's just firm ground to stand on, is to the employer-employee relationship. There's a lot of similarities there. And so let's just address that real quick. It, mean, it means he's addressing many of us in the room because many of us are employers or employees. Now let's talk about employees. Employees, you represent Christ, so work hard. Listen, you may love your job or you may hate your job. You may find your job as the most fulfilling uh, role and work, or you may leave your work every day feeling unsatisfied. Either way, whatever the case may be, Paul is saying, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as the working for the Lord. Employees, you represent Christ, so work hard and honor the Lord with your work. And remember, you're serving him ultimately. Employers, here's your part. Colossians chapter four, verse one. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Employers, you represent Christ, so be fair, be fair. Some of you have the responsibility of being an employer. Be fair to them. Make sure your workers know that you are a Christ follower and that you are trying to honor the Lord in your workplace and in your leadership of them. Use your position of leadership in their life 
to represent Christ well. So as we wrap up the message and this series, we want to do this. Let's not forget, we represent Christ. We represent Christ to the world in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in our workplace, we represent Christ. Everything we do and say, we are to do it as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you uh, are sitting here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1 that it was on the cross that Jesus rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Maybe you would describe what's happening to you in your life right now as your eyes are opening. God's opening your eyes and you're starting to see some things that you've never seen before. Paul also said in Colossians that it was in Christ that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. If you've never asked Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, why not do it this morning? Romans 10.9 says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If you're ready to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth this morning, when the service is over, I want to invite you to come up front. I'll be up here. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you and help you take your first steps in your relationship with the Lord. For the rest of us, for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, let's be reminded of what Christ has done for us, for who he is, and let's live our lives and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so thankful. Your word says that you loved us and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. And not only did you do that, but you adopted us, in, you're willing to adopt us into your family, that we are holy and dearly loved children. God, would you help us to live out of that identity? And would you help us to be a church family who lives and does everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? God, we want to be a church that bears much fruit and brings you glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.